Now stop, you take five sips through your nose of air, because you're trying to extend that apnea. And then you breathe normally. And I get them to walk back, breathe through your nose normally, and you do five of that. You might feel a little bit lightheaded at the moment. I do. Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. I hope you enjoyed last week's conversation with Fabricio. It was a pleasure to do. And you may remember at the start, we talked about AI generative art. Now, inspired by this and encouraged by another artist and listener, shout out to Logan in New Zealand. I was inspired to use generative AI art to create this week's podcast cover. So for the uninitiated, AI art, basically what happens is artists write algorithms not to follow a set of rules, but to learn a specific aesthetic by analysing thousands of images. And then what that algorithm does, it tries to teach the AI to generate new images in adherence to the aesthetics it has learned. So then you put in some keywords and then the AI spits out a piece of artwork in response. So for this week's guest, I entered the keywords breathe, free, run, and strong. I applied a cubist filter and then it turned out something that I think is pretty cool actually. And if you head over to our Instagram at the big run, you can see the results. So why breathe, free, run, and strong? Well, today's guest has had an interesting journey to arrive on an obsession with breath and its power to change you. After heading up denim for the huge 90s brand Diesel, as it had its meteoric rise in the 90s, he pivoted and became a teacher. Running had always been in his life after being inspired by Zola Bud to run the 1500 metres at his school barefoot. But when he came across breathwork and specifically nasal breathing, things really stepped up. Ladies and gentlemen, I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm delighted to welcome Kevin McQuaid. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on The Big Run. Really excited to to get into your story and your background in, in fashion and now your kind of current interest in the world of, of breath work. Um, there's, there's a lot to unpack and explore, but I suppose... Let's start with movement. When did when did running kind of come into your life? Because I feel last time we spoke, it's it's a relatively new thing for you, running, or has it always been a part of who you are? No, it's it's kind of um, I've had a an on off relationship with running, which is very much on at the moment. But one of my um, earliest memories of sports was uh, the LA Olympics in 1984, mm. and there were various athletes that really stuck with me. I remember Carl Lewis won four gold medals, which felt a massive achievement. Daley Thompson um, in the decathlon, which I loved because I loved the variety that he was able to compete in lots of different events. But really the running really struck with me. So Seb Coe, um, and I think it was the Olympics when Coe and Yvette were going head to head and there was a young cram as well. Mm. And but Zola Bud running barefoot. I just thought it was amazing. And then at the school sports day, I'd, I'd always kind of been one of these kids that had loved being outside, but was never quite, I was always not quite there. I, I had the desire, but there'd always be someone else who maybe would be picked before me. And in the school sports that year, I ran barefoot in the 1500 metres and I won it, which I was overjoyed about. So I kind of had this really positive, formative memory of running. And then the first secondary school I went to, running was 
really key. It was in Twickenham. And we used to do a lot of running and I was, I was okay at cross country, but at that age, it's just, I coach kids now and it's about getting them to enjoy it. Mm. And then my parents moved. So we moved as a family to Canterbury. Um, I then went from Canterbury to London to university in 91. Um, and I kind of spent a lot of the, um, early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, um, enjoying going out, socializing, the nascent club scene that became a lot bigger. Um, and I wasn't really, running wasn't really much of my, was part of my life. And it came back into my life in the early noughties. I'd had a relationship end um, and there was a guy I just started running with and I wanted something to focus on. So he said, do you want to do the New York marathon with me? And I was mm. like, yeah, that's something that will, really helped focus me. So I trained and did that, um, which I loved. I had a, had a wonderful experience. And I then kind of, again, dipped in and out of running a little bit. It was the noughties was a time when running crews had started up. And so Nike had started doing running uh, with groups from Nighttown and Oxford Circus, but also from the Nike store that they had when it was open in Stratford. So I started doing a little bit more structured running. Um, and I then around, so I was running a little bit. I, I started teaching in 2011 mm. and I stopped running completely. Um, and after my first term of learning to teach, which, which was really, really hard. And I learned some really valuable lessons, um, and I knew, yeah, I got to the point at the end of my first half term where, or first term where it was touch and go whether I would qualify. And I then realized I needed something to release and something to give myself some space. And I went for a run and I felt amazing. And I don't think I ran particularly fast or particularly far or for a particularly long period of time. And I knew that I needed to run to give myself some space. Mm. Um, and that became more regular over my teaching career until I got to around 2017, 18. And I became curious as to what I was able to do in terms of running. I was in um, uh, with my current partner now, so we've been together for five years and she was giving me the support and the space to kind of investigate what I could do from a running point of view. So I became really interested and I trained for Berlin and I ran Berlin in, I think it was 2017, not much slower than I'd run New York in 2004. Mm. So I was like, I wonder what I can do. So then that kind of over the last five years now, um, has led me down a road of all sorts of curiosity around movement, around running, um, and where I am with breath and various other things, which leads me to today. Um, there's, there's so much to, to unpack from that. I, I'm particularly drawn to this image of you running the 1500 meters barefoot when you were, <laughs> when you were younger, was that, was that you channeling Zola Bird? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was one of those things where the, the, the other kids and the parents obviously thought I was a bit mad, but you're, you're going back to this would have been in 1980, 
85, I think it was, 84. Mm-hmm. And so running shoes, I, I was a big trainer geek as a kid. Right. Um, but it was the time where trainers weren't such a big thing. You know, I think my first pair of trainers were a very pair, early pair of Reebok Classics and then had a pair of Knight Wimbledons. Um, so they weren't the sort of things you want to be running in now, but that's what you had. So shoes weren't a big thing in terms of, you know, you were a kid at school. So I just loved the feel of the grass underfoot and I was faster. I was like, <laughs> and I think it was a mental thing there, but yeah. So you've got this little kid in what would have been year seven. It was my first year in old money. Um, running around a 400 meter track with nothing on the feet of the school sports day. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. What a pure experience of it as well. And I suppose like those, those sort of memories that you form, because so many people I've interviewed on this show and I talk about like, you know, what was your first experience of running? And so many people often say that, oh, I used to do it in school. I used to hate it. Like my, my first encounter with it was always not a negative one, but like it wasn't a positive one. It, it wasn't particularly sold to me or kind of framed yeah. in a way that kind of got me excited about it. And just, I mean, there's, there's again, so much to unpack from your kind of previous response, but with your kind of teaching cap on when you are, when you're kind of trying to frame it to the children that you work with, are you kind of are you trying to kind of get that excitement from them? That sort of same excitement you had barefoot doing your 1500 meters? Like how do you position it to them? So their first encounter with it is a, is a good one. Yeah. So I absolutely believe with movement for children, um, it has to be enjoyable. You know, there needs to be a playful aspect to it. Um, and the kids, I mean, you get different kind of responses depending upon whether you're, so I, I have running experience with primary school children, which I'm qualified to teach. And I have some, I still have some involvement in that now. Mm. I also coach, I support coaching the juniors at Serpentine. So that's from 11 to 14, so it's slightly older. And the difference there is the, the children are coming out of choice to be in a running club. So you can be a bit more structured mm. and in terms of the session that you do with the children and it might look closer to something that you would recognize as an adult structured session but it needs to be fun um and they have to enjoy it because Mm. if they don't enjoy it as lots of people experience you go away from it um and i've had conversations with parents where they their kids are doing cross country for the first time and they've been asking for advice and i'm like look they need to come home smiling because if they enjoy it, they're going to come back and do it again. So many kids, you lose so many kids from organized sport because the parents put them under pressure. Um, and, you know, the parents think they're doing the right thing. However, it's not seen through the eyes of the kids. Um, and like kids love playing. So if you have a playful element there, it makes it a lot more enjoyable. Um, and you have a positive experience and you're more likely to do it again. Mm, yeah. It's that playful and playful element I think is, is key. Cause otherwise, yeah, like you say, they, they step away from, from the sport. And I mean, you, you yourself, you, you had a period of stepping away, like as your, another sort of strand of your career took off because you were kind of heavily involved in a, in a major fashion brand, like from its, from its early stages. Do you want to sort of talk to us yeah. a little bit about this sort of hiatus in your, in yeah. your kind of running story when you were sort of shaping uh, a running brand that, a uh, running brand, a clothing brand that I think people will be familiar with? Yeah. So I was, I had a wonderful time when I left university. So I, when I was at university, I did a history degree 
Um, and I was working at Gap um, for Gap Kids on Regent Street. And I, I was doing that while I was doing my degree. And then when I finished my degree, I didn't really, like lots of people, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. And I saw an advert to work in the stockroom at Paul Smith. Um, so I went to work in Paul Smith and I worked nine months. Um, and lots of the people I worked with then ended up going on to bigger and better things. I came out of retail. And one of the guys who I'd worked with at Paul Smith went to work at Diesel when Diesel had first been set up as a standalone company in the UK in 95. And he got in contact with me and he said, look, do you want to come and work in the warehouse in Diesel? Mm. We need to, you know, we're processing all the orders. And Diesel was a really uh, quite a small proposition at the time. And I was fascinated by it because I'd seen the Diesel adverts in Sky Magazine, which is long since gone by now, um, and The Face, and lots of those kind of cultural, really important cultural things that don't have the same level of influence today mm. as they did then, um, because the internet wasn't a thing. Mm. And I was really excited by the chance of going to work for a company that was new, that I, I just liked what it stood for. And there were 20 people who worked for Diesel at the time. There were no shops. They had a concession in Harrods. They were just opening a concession in Selfridges. Not many wholesale accounts. Um, the MD at the time said, you know, you've got a history degree. Why do you want to work here? And I said, because it's, uh, it's exciting. It's like watching something grow. So everybody kind of in the company did a little bit of everything. And then as Diesel grew, my role in the company, I was fortunate to be trusted by the people who worked there. And I was promoted through what I was doing to manage stock, to then actually manage the denim, manage the uh, the jeans area of the business within the sales team. And that was, I mean, the denim was like a major cornerstone of what Diesel was, right? So that was must have been a pretty the, you know, bit of responsibility for you to be in charge of. Yeah, it was because I was in my twenties. So uh, it was great being in London in the nineties, having a job, which involved me taking, you know, clients out to really good restaurants, being able to go to clubs, having a really, a really full social life, working with lots of, you know, with fashion, which I loved. Um, I get to go to Italy quite regularly. I get to travel. I travel around the country. It was it was a really great job at that point in time. Mm. Um, I met some wonderful people who I don't really I, I've just lost contact with, um, other than maybe one or two that I occasionally see or keep in contact with through um, one guy through Strava. Um, mm. But I'm not. I don't use social media aside from that. Um, so it was just a great time. It was a really great learning experience. It was really interesting. And I'm sure lots of lots of the people I worked with in the late 90s, early noughties have gone on to bigger and better things. Um, quite interestingly, though, when you, I kind of went away and when I um, went into teaching, you'd go back and you'd, you'd kind of chat with people if I bumped into anyone and they'd all, they'd be, some of them would be a little bit envious which i found quite funny because it's like work with kids in a school now not doing um but i guess some people fall into something and it may be it's right for that time in their life but then they they get an urge to do something else and they feel they're unable to do that and i for whatever reason i, I managed to so i i shifted 
um, my path. But, and what yeah, was that? Was... Just going back to that period, because it is like such an iconic period, that sort of mid 90s, like like Cool Britannia, Britpop, like and, and building a brand and particularly a, a building a brand, like you say, before the advent of social media. Because I, rem- yeah. I remember like my older brother having copies of like The Face and ID magazine and stuff and like the visual kind of look and feel of brands like Diesel and stuff was so kind of, you, you kind of sort of... Um, really struck a real visual, strong visual tone and kind of made, like it was the first time I ever thought of like a, a fashion brand as like, like um, trying to transmit like a feeling rather than just like buy our jeans. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, so what, what was it like in that period of time kind of carving a place for yourself within an already well-established kind of fashion industry? Um, it was really exciting because the the guy who, I mean, I, I don't know where Diesel is now or, or um, who owns it or what's happening with it, but the guy, Renzo Rosso, who set Diesel up, was very able to understand how to move past clothing and think about lifestyle mm. and use that idea of lifestyle and irreverent advertising and creativity to kind of generate a buzz around the brand. And I've got to say that, that you know, lots of the people I would, I would work with as my, you know, my counterparts from Europe and the design team in, in Italy, they'd be really interesting, really creative people. You had, a, you had a lot of English designers who were working out in Italy at the time, who were just very, very interesting people. So there was, and then you had a synergy between the creative, inventive people who wanted to work at the brand worked well with the driver of the company. So it was almost like a perfect storm where you got all these people together who were willing to think a little bit more broadly than um, if you work for a traditional brand. And I suppose that if you've got a brand that has, so Hugo Boss, for example, in the 90s was seen as quite Teutonic and Germanic, which worked well for them and a little bit more conservative. And they had a very big market and a very successful market. And I guess they still are. However, if you're designing within that template, you need to have clothing and message that reflects that. If you've got a template that is about irreverence and creativity, it feels to me that there's a lot more freedom within that. So it's a different skill set that you need um, because you could suggest that one's slightly more challenging um, if you're if you're more boundary. But because there was that freedom and there was that irreverence, and it was exciting and it was young, there wasn't really a ceiling on what you could or couldn't do. Um, and they, they certainly felt that. And the growth was really, really fast, very quickly. So that was really exciting to be part of. So you could... I, I remember at the beginning of Diesel, one of the things that was so great was, yes, it was hard work and you, you did a lot of hours, but you could affect change really quickly. Mm. Um, and that began to change as the company grew and became a lot larger. It became harder to make changes. And I, and I also think I, could, I was there for seven years. Um, and I, I just got to the point where I'd, I kind of, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to do something different. I'd got to the point where I kind of, it had run its course for me. Um, and I, Was I that mean, a tough I, decision I, I, to make? Like, as you could see it kind of ballooning and becoming this sort of behemoth, were you like, oh, should I stick on this ride for a bit longer or were you ready to, to sort of put your tools down? 
I was ready to put my tools down. I mean, I, I, I realized at a later date, I kind of always had a slight imposter syndrome when I was at Diesel. I never quite believed that um, I should be doing the job that I was doing. Mm. And, you know, maybe there were times when I was, you know, I wasn't capable and other times when I, when I was. And I think that probably informed a little bit of it. I just, and I, you know, I think imposter syndrome is nothing new. No. And it, it wasn't something at the time I, I knew a name for it. I always felt that not the job was beyond me, but I just think that I, I was, I felt lucky. I felt really, really genuinely lucky to be part of it all. Um, but I got to the point I wanted to change. Mm. And I nearly ended up working for replay um, as soon as I left my job. And I'm glad that I didn't because it would have been just doing the same kind of thing. Mm. And I then just decided it, you know, I, I needed to leave. So I, I actually left with nothing to go to because I wanted some space and some time to work out what I wanted to do. I just knew that I was like, okay, I'm done. I need to go. Um, so I did. And then I had another, after that, probably seven years working with a guy who had built up a really good business himself. Um, he was a really interesting guy to work, work for. He still, I think he still has, I'm pretty sure he still has links in the clothing industry. Um, he'd originally, um, distributed replay. Mm. Uh, and I worked with him for a while and then I worked for myself for a while. I had a really nice Danish children's brand. I briefly sold a brand from Iceland called 66 degrees North. Um, oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because my, my love in clothes was always trainers, jeans and technical outdoor, outdoor gear, which I, st you know, um, of all the things yeah still clothes, still like hugely popular today like even yeah the technical outdoor gear for sure yeah, yeah and I, I get my trainer fixed through running um and jeans i i've kind of actually my my obsession with things like that has gone into gardening and making bread <laughs> <laughs> yeah kind of going in a different direction um but yeah i mean when i was at diesel we got to watch how denim was made being in a factory it was it was fascinating mm. just watching the machines um, but yeah, I kind of, I, I got to the point where actually I came out of clothing because I was with, um, an ex-girlfriend of mine at the time and we, we were living together and she was doing some work with me and the relationship ended quite badly and which was no fault of her own to be honest, you know, there were things that happened that I regret that shouldn't have happened. And, you know, that's part of learning. So the business that I had, I needed to, it had to stop because I couldn't, I couldn't carry it on. So I kind of went through a period of my life where I learned more at that stage than anything I had learned. So I had a flat in London. So I'd, I'd moved out of, um, I was living in a house. I'd moved back to my flat. And I had nothing there. So I kind of literally left with the clothes on my back. And when I got there, you, and so I, you know, I, I had very little money. I still had my flat, thankfully. And I went through this process where I really began to realize what I valued. Mm. And so I'd gone from kind of having all this, all surrounded by all this stuff to thinking actually what's important to me now, because what sustained me through that time were the human relationships I had with friends I'd known since university, 
Um, so friends who I'm dear, dear friends of mine now, um, my mum, my brother, my sister, and you realise. So the whilst I didn't want to be in that situation, I'm grateful for that because it really taught me what I value in life and mm. what's important in life, which which for me is human relationships and healthy human relationships. Mm. Um, so- yeah, so it's just listening to you, it's extraordinary, isn't it? How, you know, these incredible experiences, you know, even you talking about it and me being like, oh, wow, you know, kind of cool, you know, cool pretending in the 90s, being part of that, like an extraordinary experience, but it's always really refreshing to hear like how it can sort of make you kind of find what your North Star is, like in terms of what you value and what's what's important to you. Was that was that kind of part of what sort of steered you towards wanting to to teach more and kind of give back almost like, was that kind of part of the the rationale into going into that sort of thing? Do you know, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, the, the, the funny thing about teaching is there's a lot of teaching in my family. My dad was a teacher. Okay. His mum was a teacher. My, my, my mum's older and younger sister, one's always been a teacher. The other's been a TA for years. I never wanted to teach. I, I, honestly, I'd never had any desire to teach mm. me at all. And I was reading an article in a Sunday paper about history being marginalised in schools. And I suddenly had this epiphany, I want to teach. And this was in 2009. I mean, And so I kind of was like, right, I'm going to be a teacher. And I didn't want to work in secondary school because I was, um, I qualified. Uh, so the guy that I'd worked with before I had my own business, he owns a football club and I had qualified as a football coach and I was coaching one of his youth teams. Um, and so I kind of had some experience working with children at that level. I was also volunteering to work for a charity in Hackney. That's a mentoring charity. So you'd go and do an hour's academic support of the children and then you coach them football for an hour. And I really wasn't comfortable with the idea of working in secondary schools because I didn't, it didn't appeal to me because of the behavior management side of it. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious. I want to teach a breadth of subjects. And, and I also knew that I needed to work and primary is there's a, uh, you know, there's a teaching shortage for stop, but there are less males who teach in primary. Um, and actually I think that you make, you can make a bigger difference to a child's learning ability. The earlier you get them you can always teach someone how to learn but if you learn how to learn from a very early age it makes your life so much easier mm. so i was like well, i'm going to retrain as a primary school teacher um so, so that's what i did extraordinary i love this epiphany moment of you sort of suddenly being like i want to teach like was it was it that clear in your head that moment yeah and the beauty of it was i'd never known what i wanted to do I kind of, so the reason I weren't, I went into fashion because I loved clothes. I loved fashion. Um, you know, I was, I was obsessed with reading about it and I always had this real interest in, um, I, I suppose in, in street culture. So I was re- I loved hip hop and graph and, and all of the culture that came out of that. And then the kind of the clothing in the late eighties, it was linked to rave and house. And as that led through the kind of that, I was really, really interested. So I kind of fed into that and I worked in that because it was a passion of mine, mm. not because I kind of had this moment where I thought I'm going to work in fashion and be a designer or self, you know, there was none of that. Mm. So this for me was, 
something I thought I'm going to do this. I mean, one of the things my mum said to me years ago is you should always uh, trust your gut, trust your instincts, which is interesting because over the last two or three years, I've looked at this from a different point of view in terms of um, we have a polyvagal nerve that's linked to our brain and all this sort of stuff. So there's definitely something about that. And I'd had this gut reaction to wanting to do it. And I thought you should do this. Um, because there have been occasions previously I'd had a real, I'd seen something or been somewhere and I'd had this gut response and I'd ignored it and I'd lived to regret that. So mm. I thought, actually, you should do this. If it fails, so what? Mm. But if you don't, you're always going to wonder. So I wonder the gut thing's interesting as well. I feel like and maybe this is again, this again, this is a very general sweeping statement that's backed up in no sort of hard-based evidence or anything, but I feel like the kind of current climate, social media, the amount of noise, I suppose, is what I'm trying to articulate that's out there that's made people uh, maybe not trust their gut so much and sort of talk themselves out of those kind of impulsive kind of choices. And it's always really lovely to hear someone articulate in a way of like, I had this thing, I wanted to do it, I did it. Like it's, 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 it's really, it's really nice, nice to hear. So you've kind of made this pivot running sort of started to drip feed back into your life. And I love that thing as well, when you were sort of talking about like the early 2000s when run crews were starting, just that whole thing of like, it feels as now like, cause running such a big part of the kind of the culture of you say like, yeah, yeah. I'm a runner or you identify as a runner. Everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But like back then, like run crews, what would you mean? Run crews, like it, it feels like it was a bit more of a, like not a dirty secret, but not so part of the conversation. So like for you kind of, changing that pivot with your career when did you so after the new york marathon and then coming back and doing berlin in 2018 so what was your kind of journey of 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 rediscovering it after having sort of rediscovered what your what your purpose was with with teaching um so i was in a uh, about the time i'd sort of just before i'd started running i had uh i was curious about um kind of modalities around wellness and i had begun to start meditating i think around 2018 yeah that's that's around right mm. and one of the things i as i was running i kind of when i was training for berlin i had always been uh, when i started teaching actually more of a i'd kind of drink at the weekends and not so much during the week but binge drink Mm. And I, me and booze are, uh, we don't get on brilliantly in terms of I'm, I'm a bet I'm a better person for not drinking. So well, I'm not drinking at all now. Mm. Um, whereas some people it, you know, it's, it's not something that is particularly problematic for them. And as I was, I'd gone out on a Saturday with friends of mine and I drunk far too much. And then the following week, this was about six weeks out from Berlin. I was training and my calf just went and I thought, right, you're at an age now where you have to make a choice. You need to think what's important to you in your life. What do you get more from mm. you know, because if you want to train to run in the way that to, to really say, I, I do, I want to know how good I can be. Mm. What's the best possible, um, running performance I can put in. And I just thought you can't drink. And actually it was a really nice revelation for me because then it kind of gave me the freedom to move into running. Now at the time I didn't stop drinking. I carried on for around another year, but I began to drink less and less alongside which I kind of, uh, the meditation side of things 
drew me more towards making decisions for myself that I was really happy with, that I was settled with. Um, and as I was running more, I was running better. Mm. And I was uh, surprised at this because I was, you know, I was in my late 40s and I couldn't believe it. And then I was really, I was really fascinated by thinking, well, how good can I get if I, if I train in a way mm. that allows my body to perform as well as it possibly can? Because I thought my days of running, you know, quickly were well behind me. Mm. And I was never that, that fast when I was younger anyway. So I began to go down the rabbit hole of looking at all these different things that I could possibly do to try to improve my running. And I'm really curious. And I'd been, I'd kind of come across Wim Hof at this point in time um, through, actually through, uh, there's a couple of guys who had, who had a magazine called We Move and they, they don't do the mag anymore. They did two issues and they set up a podcast and I was put onto that by a guy that I worked with on and off in the fashion industry for years. And so I started listening to their podcasts and reading the magazine and getting really interested in the different ways that you can kind of look after your body mm. and look after your, look after your mind. And so one of those was, and that, that then took me down two paths. One was, um, how I could structure my running in a way that was going to allow me to improve my time in a way that was safe. So I started investigating how to structure my running in a far um, better fashion. Mm. But the other way, I started getting really interested in breath. Mm. And I've always eaten really well. Um, and I, I was thinking, you know, the, the breath's really interesting to me because I was like, it's something that we control. And it's something we don't control. And having done, I, I then did Wim Hof does a fundamentals course and I'd, I'd gone to, I think a breath workshop and it blew my mind the way that I felt after I'd done this breath workshop. So How did you feel? What was it about it that you felt that blew your mind? It was like being really high okay. at the end of it. And you know, I've come out of the club culture of the nineties. So Okay. Had <laughs> you had some fame of reference. Okay. Being at the Ministry of Sound or various other places and, you know, in the middle of the night listening to a piece of music and being in a place where, you know, you, you, you have that experience, which is chemically enhanced. And this was something that wasn't, and it, what really, um, struck me was how you could use your breath to generate this feeling of peace and almost like ecstasy through your breath alone so mm. pretty clean pretty safe well actually if you've got no heart conditions your blood pressure's low and it was facilitated in a in a really safe way and i was like well what what else can you do with your breath this is like um this is really interesting for me and it must have an impact on how we how we move and how we exercise and at the same time i'd started seeing this guy in the states a chap called tony molina virtually um because i'd heard this other this other podcast about uh, how you can kind of change change your posture through that using exercises through your eyes and using magnets on the side of your head so all kind of stuff that you would think is absolutely bonkers and 
one of the things, so I went to see him and he actually did change the way that I was walking because I'd walked with orthotics for quite a long time and I'd, I'd have pain in my back if I wore flip-flops all day. What was the, what was the practice that you were exploring to help with your posture? Um, so he was, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a Canadian woman who set it up. She's really interesting. And effectively, when we have injuries, you can, our brain is really clever and our body's really clever. And we will compensate with our eyesight by slightly changing our posture in a way to make us feel that we're walking properly. And what that can be a result of our mind and our body trying to keep us safe. Hmm. Now, what happens in the long term is, is putting undue pressure on different parts of your body in a way that means eventually they're going to break down. So there will be, you've used um, Feldenkrais, I believe. Feldenkrais, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in the same way as the Pose Method and Paul Check stuff, it's all about how our bodies keeps us safe for as long as it can, and then it breaks down. So you look at your movement patterns and realize there are really subtle movements and shifts you can do to improve the way mm. that you move. So Tony started taking me through these amazing exercises with your eyes. So how you you can follow your finger or a pencil with the end of your nose around with your eyes and you, you change it slightly and it does change the way that you stand so the first time i saw him i mean my other half was in the room and filming me and she was in stitches because he had me with my eyes closed marching on the spot and then trying to stand still and you kind of like <laughs> veer off in funny directions and i went through a stage of having a little magnet taped to the side of my head and my mates would just think it was ridiculous and laugh at it and I mean, it was funny. And I'd say to Jen, look, if this is placebo, I don't care. I'm going into this with an open mind and I'll see if it works. And actually it did work. I got rid of the orthotics, my back pain cleared up. And I, you know, I was like, this is great. And one of the things that Tony had done and suggested, which I don't need to use now and actually no one does is he got me to, he said, you should be nasal breathing when you're running mm. because of all these various benefits. And I thought, okay, I'm willing to give that a go. So I had this, he got this gum shield made for me, which actually is quite a little bit uncomfortable, but you don't, you can lazy breathe without having a gum shield in your mouth. It. And so I started about four years ago now. Um, and it kind of, I then became more interested in, okay, so if this is supposed to be better for you when you run. Um, and I found my running was getting better through purely nasally breathing and I was able to run on all my recovery runs because it's a modality I would suggest you only use in when you're running easy. Mm. I started my easy pace was getting a little bit faster whilst it felt exactly the same mm. um, because you know that should be the measure of how you're running. So I was then really curious about how breath was used in running because I thought it's absolutely critical. You know, you can go for quite a long time without food you can go for a little bit longer without water you can't go very long without breathing and you know when you're done when you're running because your breath goes it, mm -hmm. so i then and i was also really curious about the experience i'd had with wim hof and how we can use our breath to change our mindset because at school i began to start wanting to teach the year six class i had meditation breathwork practices movement practices because they're not something that are hugely based on the curriculum. And I believe one of the reasons that um, we have 
quite a hands-off approach to wellness is we don't experience it in a safe environment where we get the opportunity to see if it works for us or not. Mm. And if you, if you expose children, they might come away from it, but if they've had a good safe experience of various practices around moving well, breathing well, sitting with yourself, being aware of your body, then you're not going to be scared by it. And equally, you're not going to expect to be, um, like, a Buddhist monk sat on top of a mountain mm-hmm. yeah. then because that that's that's unrealistic especially in the you know if you're living not in Nepal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not gonna happen so I then went down a rabbit hole of the world of breath and it is a rabbit hole and it's very deep and you learn all sorts of interesting things it's fa- I mean it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating where did you, what did you start? Like, where, where did you start exploring? So you kind of had your kind of, your gateway, so to speak, was, was Wim Hof, like, and you'd done some nasal breathing whilst running. So when you fell down this rabbit hole, who did you sort of start exploring? Okay. And the other thing that really got me into it was listening to a podcast with a guy called Leo Daniels, who had really serious asthma when he was a child. Mm. I've never been asthmatic. So this isn't something that, um, appeals to me but he'd then been taken by his mum he's Irish he's a uh, he's actually a PT um, coach now and he'd had terrible asthma and he went to see a I think it might have been a Buteyko practitioner or it was Patrick McEwen who is who I eventually trained with and he started following his protocols helped clear his asthma up and so for him was very effective and then he he retrained as a breath practitioner and he began to use it for sport. And I've always been really fascinated with performance and human performance. Mm. So that kind of led me down the road of, okay, so I'm going to look at breath, not just from a wellness point of view, but also from a performance point mm. of view, because both of them I'm finding equally powerful. And there are, I, I just started reading a lot. So there's a guy in the UK called Arthur Paulins who does a lot of breath work. So he does a breath work course for about, I think it's six weeks. Um, I might have done a couple of things before that because I did that at the beginning of lockdown um, in 2020. And I, ha- yeah, I had done some stuff before that. So he taught five or six different breath practices that you would try in the morning and the evening to understand the different ways that you can breathe, the different impact that they have on you. So hyperventilation, um, reducing your breath, um, doing something which is like Kabaddi breathing. So you just, you're forcing the exhale a lot faster, cadence breathing, you know, all these kind of different breathing modalities. And that was really valuable because mm. I experienced all these different ways of breathing and could understand the impact they had on me. So I could then decide which ones I might want to use with children at school. There are guys in the States who do something called Art of Breath, a guy called Rob Wilson and Brian McKenzie, and they're very much focused on athletes and how you use nasal breathing to improve your athletic performance. Mm. And I think they, they're, I, my sense with those guys is they're quite ingrained in the world of UFC and MMA and more of that higher anaerobic work. Um, and so I did, they, they have a course that I did. There's, then there's a guy called Dan Brillet who's considered um, a very well-respected breathwork guy he's written a couple of books on breath and he's been around the breath work industry for I don't know, 50 years i think mm. um, and again lots of different breathing modalities 
and he tends to come at it maybe more from a wellness bent. And as I was doing this, I began being, and I, I was running better. I then started looking in running books for information about breath. And it's hardly ever there. Mm. So you buy any running coaching book, and this is a game I play, you go to the back and you look at the index and you look for breath. And it's, it, it might get a mention in a paragraph somewhere. It started to astound me because I'm thinking fundamentally, you've got nutrition advice, you've got training advice in terms of biomechanics and how you might structure a run. Is it easy? Is it, you know, are you doing a threshold run? Are you doing intervals? Are you doing hill work? Are you doing strength training? But nothing about how you breathe, hmm. which I find uh, and I still find incredible because, you know, your breath, you know, when you're done because your breath's done. Yeah. So I was then like in this place, I'm thinking, actually, I want to learn more about this. So I then realized, I, you know, I'm a qualified teacher. I want to, I actually want to move into breath work because I've been teaching for seven or seven years, maybe at this point, uh, eight years because this was around 2018, mm -hmm. 2019. So I then thought, well, I want to find a methodology that I can teach that for me is going to work for where I want to go. And that became quite tricky because there are so many different ways to breathe promoted by so many different people. Mm. And I was looking at Wim Hof and I just felt it was not what I wanted to learn to teach and it's quite expensive and it's even more expensive now. And then I was reading, um, I'd read Patrick McEwen's book, The Oxygen Advantage, which took me back to this guy, Leo Daniels, who I'd heard um, around 2016 or 17, I think the podcast. And I became really interested in what Patrick was doing. And I felt that he offered a really nice balance between breathing for for well-being and breathing for, for performance, mm. which is what I wanted. And so I then trained as an oxygen advantage instructor in 2020, in July of 2020. So when lockdown started, mm. um, I'd realized that my time, full-time um, teaching was coming to an end. I, I knew I'd done 10 years or I was, I'd done nine years at that point. And I was like, I'm done with full-time teaching. Um, I want to move into breath and movement. So I would, I'd found the um, breathwork training I wanted to do. And I also then thought, well, I'm going to qualify as a PT because breathwork is something that is quite left field. And I want something that's more traditional to give people confidence in me, mm. to be honest. Um, but as I was doing that, I also realized that there was a really big gap in terms of how you breathe when you run. Mm. So I thought, well, actually that for me is perfect. I love running. I love coaching. I love teaching people. Um, and I'm really interested in breath. So I've kind of then started going down this road of looking at how you can integrate breath when you coach and how you coach runners. Um, alongside which started playing with some of the breathing techniques that Patrick teaches myself when I run, because one of the challenges I have when I coach football is I was never a great football player. I love watching the game, but I felt 
again, slight imposter syndrome because I didn't feel confident in asking the people I was coaching to do what I wanted them to do. Whereas with running, I can run to a, a relatively decent standard. Um, so I can, you know, I, I know the impact that the teaching modalities will have. So I felt a lot more confident trying something myself and then being able to integrate it mm. with coached running. So what are the things that you've been experimenting with and what have you found successful and what have you found that like tends to work for, for you and your kind of experiences with it? Cause like, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, just a, a little bit of context for the listeners and then coming, coming back from, from COVID and I'm not saying it's a potential cure for COVID or anything like that, but like, I'm, <laughs> I am uh, very conscious of my breath like a lot more than I used to be. Yeah. And it's something I've, I have actually experimented with before. Like I've, I've, I've read the oxygen advantage and I've experimented with nasal breathing before, but I'm, I'm curious to see like what you found, um, worked for you in terms of, of running. Cause I think that, that that's a really interesting point. It's such a fundamental part of the act of running you know, why isn't it given more or explored more in terms of training it and working within it to see if there's any potential benefits? Yeah. So what, I mean, one of the things I loved about OA was the, that any, any science that is there, Patrick's very clear about using it to support what he's doing, which gave me more confidence because I do think that, um, it's important to have some efficacy that, that there has been some research done somewhere. So I kind of needed a little bit of uh, another. So I didn't just want it to be anecdotal or from my experience, I wanted almost like three pillars to support something, which I think that is quite uh, quite nice in the efficacy of how something works. So I've looked at it in pre-running um, and then depending upon how you're running, the breathing you can use and post-running. Mm. So pre-running i would i i started think about pre-running in how you would breathe before you might do a session so i would also put easy running into that and i began to just any running where i'm doing recovery running or the vast majority so people will recognize 80 20 rule. so the idea mm. like the majority of your running is fairly easy so the majority of any running where I'm trying to recover, the intention is to give my body that opportunity to recover after something that's a little bit harder, all nasally breathing. And one of the reasons that that's effective is that you might have heard of the talk test. People listening might have heard of the talk test. So you're asking people to run, but be able to chat and have a nice conversation. Mm. Yeah. You're breathing through your nose. Because the resistance is greater, breathing through your nose, through your mouth, it does mean you have to slow down and i would never say to anybody go out and run for if you run for an hour easy go and run and, and breathe nasally do it in the middle for 10 minutes if you've never done it before so i found that that was a really good tool at improving my body's efficiency when i was running in winter it's great because your air your nose warms air and it humidifies air so it takes away that irritation from your throat rather than taking in big mouthfuls mm. of cold air you feel calmer, you feel in more control. So I began to use that for all my easy running. And now, I, you know, if I'm running and for a pace of me that's easy, however long I'm running for, it could be three hours, I'll, I'll always breathe in my nose. I then, there's some of the other stuff that Patrick has put into place, which I started playing with, was 
breath holds for periods of time when you're striding. And I would do this before I'm going to do a slightly tougher session. Okay. If you you breath hold, so I would breathe in and out through my nose, hold my breath for five paces, breathe in and out through my nose three times, hold my breath for five paces, and then maybe hold my breath for 10 paces. You push carbon dioxide, the longer you hold your breath, the more carbon dioxide is building up in your blood. That goes into your muscles, and actually it's a really effective way of warming your muscles up. I read somewhere recently that you warm up by 25% um, with higher levels of CO2, and it acts as a vasodilator, so it dilates your blood vessels. So you feel warmer if you hold your breath quite often, you might feel a bit warmer. That's one of the responses. So I began to do that before I was going to do any threshold run, any tempo run, any interval runs. I might do it for a kilometer and I found actually that works really well for me gets me warmer gets me in a place where I'm more ready to then exercise and then there's slightly stronger um breath holds where you would breathe in and out and then you'd walk jog stride run and then you take um five or six sips of air wait 30 seconds I did five of these before I remember the first time I did five of these set off my interval and I couldn't believe how easy it felt and how fast I was going. It's almost like you supercharge yourself. So just, just to go, just to dial back on that just quickly. So talk us through the process of what you did before doing your interval. So you did, so you walked, jogged, stride and then run, but before that you'd taken. Yeah. You'd just, so you, you, you hold your breath on an exhale. So you breathe okay. in, you breathe out and hold your breath. I get the kids to do this. Patrick calls it shark fit. Go on. And- tell you what, talk, talk me through it. Now, I, I know I can't run and walk and, and yeah. stride for the listeners, but just sort of like run me through it so I can... Yeah, I'll I can, talk I, you through how I, you were doing it. Yeah, so go on. Saying, so you, you take an, an easy breath in through your nose, you let the breath out through your nose, and you hold. And now if we're on the track, so we're at Paddington Rec, I'll be, start walking. So I get him to walk for a little bit. Now start jogging. You're still holding your breath. Then you start run, striding and then you start running. Okay. Now stop. You take five sips through your nose of air because you're trying to extend the apnea. Mm-hmm. And then you breathe normally. And I get them to walk back, breathe through your nose normally, and you do five of that. You might feel a little bit lightheaded at the moment. I do. Yeah, you might, because what you've done is you, you kind of, you're pushing the oxygen out into your brain. It's been released with carbon dioxide and your body's. But I also feel a bit more kind of like, you know, alert as well in, yeah. in a little way. Yeah, 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 you will. So there was research that found that five was the best amount to do. I mean, with kids, I might do a few less because kids breathing patterns are different. Hmm. Um, but you do five of those, you then set off on your interval and it's, it's like rocket fuel, but you have to be careful. Because, so the first time I did this, I went shooting off, but I was like, I've gone far too far. So <laughs> you, you burnt really, yourself. <laughs> yeah. I'm supposed to be doing 400 meters in 80 seconds and I've done them in 74. And it's like, I would never normally do that. And it's like, no, there's something wrong there. That, but it felt really easy and it just warms your body up really effectively. Mm. So that's something that I, I do religiously if I'm doing anything that's longer and harder and I, I'll do it with kids. And then I also found in terms of recovery, there's something called a physiological size. So you finish, you finish, you might be doing 400 or 800 or three minutes of tempo or whatever it is. And then you would do a double inhale through your nose and a slow exhale through your mouth. Mm-hmm. 
and so when kids are crying and you see them trying to calm themselves uh, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. a physiological sign the first inhale pushes open that there are lots of little tiny air sacs in your lungs the first one pushes them open the second one gets the air in the mouth exhale then blows off the excess carbon dioxide that you've created when you've worked at a high level mm. so you do maybe five of those and then I would try to get back to nasal breathing as quickly as possible or doing some of the breath holds for five strides again to kind of push oxygen out into my muscles. Um, and it's working the diaphragm. Um, I'll come back to the diaphragm. And so I found that's really valuable in terms of helping me doing any harder work. Mm. Um, and then the best thing I think with breath is when you're, doing a cool down and you're finished is cadence breathing. So that's breathing in and out for a count of either five or six. And there's a great, there's great, um, a great story around where this, you know, how, how broad this is. And that kind of balances your autonomic system. So you're balancing your nervous system. And if you breathe in for a count of five and out for a count of five or six, that's, that's either five or six breaths a minute which has been discovered to be the ideal way that our body um, works with breath and it kind of balances your heart with your breath and it feels amazing. So I'll do this when I've had a hard day at work, I'll come in and I'll put a timer on and I'll just cadence breathe for 10 minutes. Um, and the, the interesting thing about this is- Is that nasally as well? I do it all nasally. All nasally. Yeah, you generate something called nitric oxide through your nose and that, that dilates your it's a vasodilator dilates your blood it also helps the um uh, how your how oxygen is then spread more effectively throughout your lungs so you get a better distribution of um air and that what was discovered with that is there's lots of religions who have a mantra so there's a guy who wrote a book called breath by james nestor and he talks about it in his book so the ava maria the catholic prayer that's for um five or six breaths a minute so the, the priest will say something so you're breathing in when the priest is saying something and then when you talk you can't breathe in and talk at the same time you then repeat back mm. and the interesting thing about that that's at a cadence of five to six breaths a minute there's another ancient, you know, there's more than one ancient faith that has exactly that breath, which to me is fascinating. Mm. You can have um, faiths that are really old that have naturally settled on this ideal way to breathe. Mm. Um, it's fascinating. It is. And it's so fundamental as well, I think, because th th I think that's that's an interesting part of the sort of narrative around that is that sometimes people can get a little bit not confused or maybe it's slightly unsure of it because there you know it might be a bit left field and stuff like that but the, the fundamentals of breath is fundamental to like the to inspiration like that word to be inspired is to draw yeah. breath like it's it's fundamentally connected to how we think we draw breath before we speak like it's a fundamental part of how we communicate how we exist and i think the more 
I think that it, become, it can become more widespread and more like applied in different settings outside of sports, like what you're doing with working with children and stuff like that. If we sort of remind ourselves that it's actually something that we've been doing maybe subconsciously or through religion or through other like ancient practices for for a long period of time. And it's not perhaps this sort of left field kind of avant-garde, strange, exotic thing. It's actually, we've we've kind of been connected to it or maybe we've become slightly removed from it, but it's something that's fundamental to, to who we are as humans, if, if that makes sense. In yeah, a, I mean, I would challenge anybody to not be able to calm themselves down really fast if they were able to change their breathing. So if you're really angry, to have the presence of mind to do that is unusual. But if you could force yourself or you're really nervous to change the way you breathe, you are giving your body physiological information as to how to change. So for me, I found this really powerful. I developed a, a phobia of driving on the motorway. And with all the will in the world, however ridiculous I knew it was, as soon as I get onto the motorway, I would tense up and I'd, I was awful to be in a car with. And the only way that I helped myself get over this was I would change as soon as I got on a motorway for about a year, I did this. I changed the way I breathed because you can't, my, my body had gone into pure panic. So if I want my mind to, I've already subconsciously decided what's going to happen. Now, the only way I can get myself out of that is by changing my physiological state and by mm. taking control of my autonomic nervous system, which you do through the breath. Mm. And I've managed to do that. So I managed to resolve. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to cure anyone of driving phobias because that was my experience. It worked for me. I think it can be very helpful. Um, there's a really great book called Our Body Knows a Score, which is all about how we internalize trauma. And one of the things that comes out of it is you've got people who are going to see psychiatrists and psychologists and they, they're, they're in such a, a state of trauma that like a physiological state of trauma to almost try to help them with talk therapy is incredibly difficult because they're not in a place where they feel safe enough to actually engage with the talk therapy. Mm. And I think this is where the breath becomes very, very powerful because it's one of the few things, I think it's the only thing actually, that is autonomic and we can take control over. Mm. And yeah. that to me is, you know, that that's something to explore. That's something for us to take ownership of and look at how we can um, kind of use that to our benefit as best we possibly can. Mm. It's so interesting. It's just like, again, it's just drawing on my own experience. Like when we were, when I was training as an actor, like that fundamental, like to performance and how we were taught at drama school was connecting with breath, like in terms of how you articulate meaning and transmit emotion or feeling yeah. through words how we were taught at drama school was it was all all exactly what you're talking about was connecting to to your own breath and having like a just being a transmitter for using breath to to communicate feeling and it's such a i mean it's huge the topic is huge it's a podcast series kevin i think you know this yeah. is this is a this this could become like a 10 part episodic <laughs> episodic thing and it's fascinating so for you going forward with like your own explorations in terms of incorporating running and and breath work like are there other other avenues that you'd like to to explore in terms of like helping you with your own running performance? So one of the things I'm hopefully uh, going to begin doing is doing adult group 
breath run sessions um, with uh, serpentine. So hopefully I'm going to do that because I'm more interested. So I work with some runners at the moment. Some of them, it's something that they're quite engaged with. And some of them, it's maybe something that they're, they're not so engaged with. And I think that you let you, you offer it to people, you need to let them um, come to it and see mm. the benefit of it. And then it's a lot more powerful. And so this is going to be me for me, something that's quite interesting because watching how different people respond to the breathing practices in different ways and giving them a space to explore it and benefit from it. And I will learn a lot. I mean, I learned so much from teaching kids mm. in terms of what works and, do- and what doesn't work. And it's teaching children is invaluable for coaching anybody. And so I'm really interested in doing this in a, in a more structured running set, because one of the, one of the things that I do want to, which I've started doing and I want to do is that I feel that the, the kind of the gap for running and breathing came about There's uh, Ryan Williams was talking about chi running. Mm. So the guy that I trained with breathwork is a chi runner. You've got barefoot running, chi running, which is very much open towards breathwork and running. Mm. But that's a very different end of the scale from the club running scene. That's mm. a lot more structured and traditional that I was never that attracted to. And it was the running crews that really pulled me in. Mm. And there's kind of, there should be a middle ground where you've yeah. got people who like, I like competing in road races. And that means I, ne- I need to take something from the chi running side of things in terms of mechanics and breath. But I also need the structure of the club running scene. I need both. And I think we're missing something there. I think there's, and that's a, that's the avenue I want to go down in kind of being mm. open-minded and taking from both sides to create a better way to run. And there are lots of coaches who are interested in that, um, but maybe we're almost like in our own little silos and we don't know enough about one another. Um, I just think it's really interesting. So I, I just when you before when you were kind of going through, you were kind of walking me through that that breathing exercise. We're recording this on a on a Monday, and obviously tomorrow is Tuesday, which is traditionally kind of club night, track night at the club. And yeah. I was just thinking like. How cool would it be if before we did our strides, we just as a group just just explored and played with working through something that you were talking about, just just to try it out? Because I think you're right. Like, and I don't feel the two the two should be separate. I don't. I feel like there is like a middle ground of like opening up the floor for a discussion about trying out new methodologies and new ways of. Uh, exploring because you know for some people they might be like nope it's not my bag I'm going to stick to what I know which is totally fair enough but like I'm definitely going to try the the thing that we just walked through before before my strides tomorrow before the session it's uh what is it it's uh 800s and 200s in some structure that I can't remember exactly off the top of my head but I certainly will be be playing playing it out I think it's it's a fun thing to to explore and try out and I, I I like I feel like that could be well it won't be the only thing but I feel like encouraging these new perspectives within the club running world will be the thing that will help keep it going as well. I think, do, do, do you feel like that's yeah. a fair estimation? Yeah. And the, the, the other thing with working with other people is they will get nuance to what they're doing and come back and say, actually, I'm finding this works really well, which means I'll go away and try that. And it's like, well, actually this is better. And it could be extending it by a little bit of time or doing an extra record, you know, and those things where you've got, instead of you're an N of one, You've got a group of maybe 15, 20 runners, and one of them is going to have a really interesting way of interpreting it that takes it forwards and moves it on and mm. makes it more, um, you know, more appealing for everyone. And that, that, 
is that's what you get from if you're open-minded as a teacher you realize you can learn stuff and then you improve your own practice which improves everyone else it's kind of that virtual circle mm, yeah i'm so excited to see where this leads and where it develops and and yeah like if it becomes a, a thing that yeah clubs do before their sessions I and mean, how cool yeah i'm definitely gonna i'm definitely gonna be counting tomorrow before <laughs> before my strides um and so, so much there so much to sort of take take away uh, and ponder with this this conversation so before we before we wrap things up there's there's normally these two sort of expansive questions that i i put to our guests for them to interpret in in any way shape or form and they are what has been your biggest failure as a runner and what has it taught you for your first question? So my biggest failure as a runner is taking it too seriously. <laughs> yeah, love that. <laughs> I get, I, and this is, uh, especially if I'm getting like the week before a marathon, I become so obsessed. I lose a certain amount of joy and I actually had an experience in London this year when that was really brought home to me. So I'd been, I was injured on and off for all of last year. Mm. And in the marathon itself, I kind of knew, um, and I was just too overly focused and I, I was beginning to lose the love of running, which is just the freedom to go out and just run. Mm. Um, and when I was doing the marathon, the, my leg went at like 34 and a half K and a guy stopped and chatted with me, um, chuckled Gordon, got me walking and then jogging. Um, and then he needed to stop because he'd, he'd gone off too hard and was just in, you know, in a place where he needed a bit of rest. And so I stopped and, and I was like, he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you've just stopped for me. I'm not finishing without you. <laughs> and so we then spent, he couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe he'd stopped for me. We spent the next, so it wasn't far from the end, we were like 8K from the end or 7K, something like that. We'd run, we'd walk. And it was so great because I, the, the whole competitive thing went for me. I was enjoying the experience running down the embankment, taking everything in. I mean, we were stopping and laughing because people were like, you can do it, you can do it. And we were both like, yeah, we know, but we're just taking it at our own pace. <laughs> and then, then we got to the end and we just kind of grabbed one another's hand, raised our hand and ran over the line together. And I would never have had that experience if I hadn't broken down and just let it all go. And so I've been very clear since you cannot take it as seriously because you just lose the joy of running. I love that. I love that. And shout out to him as well. What an absolute hero. Um, yeah, it's just always lovely hearing those sort of marathon stories. I love it. Okay, final expansive question. Are there any myths out there that you'd like to take this opportunity to debunk? Yeah. Um, that uh, this whole thing about, um, you need to, you need to go really hard mm. or, yeah, uh, I just think that rest is so important mm. and yeah, you, you know, you, you shouldn't be trying to kill yourself in training sessions. You should be finishing training sessions, feeling that you can do more and you should be able to rest. Yeah. Love that. I love that. And again, I'll be taking that sentiment and these new ideas with me tomorrow. I feel like yeah, I'm going to be uh, maybe uh, 
putting a cat amongst the pigeons at the track session tomorrow when I'm, when I'm doing all my all my funky breathing. But uh, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and going through. God, we've covered so much ground in this discussion. It's been fascinating. And uh, I'll be putting links to, to, to you and your work as well if people want to to check out the, the kind of stuff that you do in the show notes as well. But thank you for, for coming on and being such a brilliant guest on The Big Room. My pleasure. Thank you for giving me the time to let me share my story. A big thank you to Kevin for coming on, sharing his story. And if you are inspired, interested or curious about any of the breath stuff that he was discussing, you can find out more at his website, breathetomove.org. Thank you so much for listening and joining us this week for The Big Run. So many more fascinating conversations to come over the coming weeks. I hope your running's going well. I hope your weekend has started joyfully and I'll see you next week for The Big Run.